You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by computational biologist Michael Landis from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome. Hi, Tesla. Welcome to me. Yeah. Welcome to you. Yeah, welcome to everyone. Uh, And I actually targeted you as a guest because I know that you're actually finishing up soon. That's right, yeah. Uh, Maybe in the next six months or so, but I'm wrapping up here. Yeah, wrapping up. My fifth year, I think. Yeah, Mm -hmm. well, that's pretty good then in terms of uh, biologists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it means you'll definitely have lots of cool things to tell us about. Yes, I hope so. (laughs) So I called you a computational biologist. I feel like that's a term a lot of people might not be familiar with, so maybe you could tell us what that is. Yeah, it's tricky. There's a lot. um, So... I would say since like the 80s or 90s, a lot of scientific fields have begun using have begun to heavily rely on computers to do, say, make uh, statements of inference about how certain natural processes work, or to summarize large data sets. And many of these uh, fields, like chemistry, physics, they all have these computational brands to them now. And what that normally means is there's there's certain um, Parts of computer science that uh, bear on working uh, on these large data sets or these complex problems. So computational biology in particular uh, is uh, simply is uh, just using computational resources to to work on biological problems. There's another field that is sort of a sister field called bioinformatics, which is more about, at least it's it's also sort of a nebulously defined field, but it's um, often that has to do more with managing large data sets, working with um, sort of these big data problems, if you've heard that phrase before, big data, but um, what happens when you scale up problems into very large, to to very large magnitudes? uh, How do you deal with that? So does this mean they're just exploiting your programming skills? They just are like, (laughs) we just need someone to program, you know, we need a new program, and it's about biology, and so we'll call Michael? Right, not quite. I mean, for two reasons. One is the it's often that there are certain problems that are, that can only really be addressed through, say, statistical inference or, or, or something of that sort. Many problems just are beyond the, the abilities of people working at benches to, to do just the repetitive computations, the, repetitive, the sorting of data, things of that sort. The other reason why I'd say that it's not, you know, it's, computational biologists aren't just guns for hire is that programming is fortunately becoming a very ubiquitous skill set for scientists. Most people know how to do at least a little bit of scripting or a little bit of programming. And um, the problems that many computational biologists are working on, and I work mostly on um, problems in evolution, but in my field, most of the problems that people are working on are problems that are, again, just a very large, they require certain insights into how computers work and how you can structure programs and do computations efficiently. Things that are perhaps deceptively simple biological questions, but to actually answer them, it takes a little bit of insight in how, into how like the computers and math works. So it takes insight into how computers work, but you probably have a fairly good insight into how some of the biological processes work as well, right? Yeah. So um, much of what I work on are these models that attempt to characterize how evolutionary processes work. So uh, a classic problem in evolution is is the construction or the inference of these phylogenetic trees. And a phylogenetic tree is just a, a statement about the relationship between species, for instance, or individuals, uh, anything like that. So you might say a, ph- a phylogenetic tree, for instance, might tell us that humans and chimps are cl- more closely related than 
either one of those is, is related to, say, a gorilla. So these, these phylogenetic trees gives, give you a way of summarizing some evolutionary process, how these species diverge over time. Now, to construct these trees, what's tricky is you have to be able to, when you're saying that things are closely related or not closely related, you have to be able to uh, ascribe a distance of sorts between species. And um, the, the distance is, the tri- is one of the tricky parts of uh, phylogenetic inference. How do, you, how do you decide how distantly related things are? One way you can do that is by looking at the genes of different species. And then um, creating, this is, I'm getting back to the biological process here, but you, to create this distance, you, you might take the, the DNA sequences from multiple species and then say, let's, let's assume you have a stochastic process, which uh, that's just a process that operates, say, on the basis of time and that the value the process takes on. So in this case, we'll be talking about DNA, so A, C, G, or T. So the, the biological process you might want to model with a stochastic process is the process of, uh, say, mutations occurring in a population or a mutation occurring on a particular uh, genome or a, an allele becoming fixed in a population. An allele is just a variant of a particular gene. And these are things that you can, you, if you model with the right statistical tools, you can then compute likelihoods for a certain scenarios occurring. And what's nice about that is that gives you a basis for distance. You can, you can treat, to some degree, a probability or a likelihood as a distance, saying that one thing is closer to reality than, versus further away from reality. The biological processes that I'm normally interested in are these types of processes that, uh, that occur on what are sometimes called macroevolutionary timescales, uh, things that happen over the, over the course of millions of years, and often are more focused on what happens between species rather than within species. Um, and these are sometimes called phylogenetic questions or macroevolutionary questions. But uh, I guess the crux of it is that if you want to be able to ask these questions about how these natural processes occur, like evolutionary processes occur, and you can't observe them directly because we don't live for millions of years, one of the only ways we can really get at, get at it is through this type of inference, is through trying to model it, trying to, trying to get a, a, a guess of what happened, and um, try to come up with models that are consistent with what we can observe on short timescales. That you can that you can actually observe in a, in a in a in a lifetime, and so in, in many ways this is similar to the types of questions that people get at uh, when they're looking at climate change or when they're looking at, say, the origin of the solar system or how planets are formed. Uh, that that type of question, but a lot of that relies on inference because we can never observe the things directly or do experiments on the things directly. Okay, so. You said a lot of things. I'm going to go back just a little bit. So when you're talking about evolutionary distance between two species like human and and chimps, you mentioned DNA and like how much difference there is in the DNA and how that's accumulated. But is there a concept of time as well? Are we are we really are we thinking about this in terms of when they split and like how far they've been apart from each other, like in time as opposed to distance? Yeah, there's this really interesting thing called the uh, it's called the molecular clock which I think was introduced in, in maybe 62 by uh, Zucker, Candle, and Pauling. And um, the, the idea is that let's say that all species acquire differences in their genome at a constant rate. So if you assume that, you, if you have some model for how these changes occur, then you should be able to, if you assume that constant clock, this constant rate across all, across all lineages, then you should be able to back ca- calculate based on, the, say, the generation time and things of that sort, how long it takes to reproduce. You should be able to back-calculate how the, the actual times in, on a geological time scale. So if you, observe an, if you observe a number of 
uh, we can just call them substitutions between species, should, that should be able to give you information about the amount of time that's elapsed. In this sense, it's very similar to when you think about just like classical physics, right? You have some amount of distance and you have some rate of travel, like say you're going in a car that's going 100 miles an hour, and I tell you that it's traveled 200 miles. Well, then you can calculate, well, it's probably, if it's traveling for 100 miles an hour, the rate, then you can calculate the amount of time it's traveled. Now, the problem is you can't assume that everything evolves at a constant rate, right? And so this is a real challenge in phylogenetics in particular that you don't know exactly when things happen in geological time. And it's really precious when you, when you have information about that. Like, let's say you have fossils. Then you can begin to say, we know that at this point in time, based on some characteristics of the fossil, that the divergence event for some particular group of species must have happened before or after this fossil occurrence. But the issue of distance is a tricky one because every, it's most natural to think of these things in terms of geological time units, but at the end of the day, you, don't, you never actually know when these things are going to happen. So the only way to get at it is by either taking what are called external calibration points or exter external information about the nature of time from, say, fossils or biogeographic events like dispersal events, vicariance events. And that's just, um, those are just different types of ways that species can move about the Earth. If you have some information about that, you can externally calibrate these trees. But for a long time, like say through the 90s, uh, maybe into the early 2000s, mid-2000s, distances were measured entirely in terms of, or almost entirely in terms of these numbers of expected numbers of substitutions. How many times do you think a particular nucleotide on a particular gene underwent a change it fixed in the population? Um, so it's sort of a... Yeah, the distance question is a tricky one, but it, it depends a lot on what types of models you're, you're using, what types of information you have in hand, all sorts of interesting things, what types of genes you're looking at. Some genes, if it's evolving rapidly, then that rate of substitution is going to be higher. If it's, a, if it's a gene that's very important to basic operations in life, a, a sort of a, a gene with strong um, purifying selection, sometimes called a housekeeping gene, then you expect this, the rates of substitution to be low. Because you need it. Yeah, you need it. You don't want change to occur on the thing that basically allows your DNA to rep replicate. You want, that, you, you want that, that tool to always remain constant over time. And some genes like this just seem to be highly conserved across all species. It's, it's interesting because, yeah, you, you're asking, like, what is the notion of distance? But it, um, it's, enormous, it's, just, it's just enormously important on, in terms of what genes you're looking at. If you get away from this, um, this particular notion of distance, which is time, if you think of distance as the number of changes between genes, it's, a, it's hugely important what, you, what you're looking at, what species you're looking at, what gene you're looking at, what chromosome you're looking at. Yeah. So when, you're, when you say you're interested in evolutionary processes and, and modeling them, what sort of processes are we talking about? Are we just talking about how species split from each other or other processes as well? Well, I don't work so much on um, the problem of how do you infer trees, which is um, that's a tremendous problem in itself. I work more on how do you, just using this distance analogy, how do you compute a probability for a certain type of change for a trait, like let's say body mass or a species range? How do you compute the probability that something went, underwent a certain type of change in a certain duration of time? And so the two, the two types of models I've been working on most are uh, these continuous trait models. And um, they're really interesting for a whole lot of reasons. And a, a continuous trait is something like, a, like body mass something that you can that you can measure and it's uh, typically real value mean, meaning it doesn't take on the value 1 or 2 or 3 it can be 1.7264 or 3.965 right 
The other type of process I've been working on a lot is um, range evolution, processes of range evolution, which is where do things live and how did they come to live where they are? Uh, so they're sort of different problems, but they share this uh, common basis that they're both stochastic processes. You, you, you want to model something as a function of time, and you um, hope that when you do these inferences, it t how you, depending on how you set up the model, you can start to learn really cool things about the nature of the process. And you get, you get at that typically through uh, parameters, how you parameterize the model, which might be something like the rate that the process operates or the, the mode of character change for the process, things like that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates. Today I'm speaking with computational biologist Michael Landis from Integrative Biology about his work modeling evolutionary processes. And I suppose we should go back to the beginning. Have you always been interested in biology you you mentioned to me that that no in fact well i mean yes but not uh not necessarily as an undergraduate yeah i, I mean um yeah so i grew up um my dad was a programmer in the uh, air force he worked on radar systems in the cold war and my mom apparently they met my mom was also a programmer and they met in belgium <laughs> I, I don't know i love that story but uh my brother uh, ended up studying computer science and uh as a kid, we always had some of the some of the really early, not extremely early, but fairly early computers like Commodore sixty four. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but just really, um, just really old, simple sort of com consumer grade computers. We always had things like that to play around on. And um, growing up, I was also always really interested in wildlife books and, and things like that, just on a superficial level. I mean, who doesn't love animals? As I got older, I ended up playing. I ended up focusing more and more on uh, music, and I played um, classical oboe for gosh, uh, I don't know, twelve years, something like that, fourteen years. Um, but when I went to college to study music performance, I ended up. Uh, I decided to go back to computer science for various reasons, and I, I said to you, one of them is a sort of a practical one that programming is seems to be more desirable than music performance, at least in terms of a job. Uh, anyways, I uh, yeah, I ended up really in, falling in love with programming in college, and worked for a few years. After that, I moved up to San Francisco and um, ended up not enjoying the sort of the traditional working lifestyle as much as I as I anticipated. I'm not sure what I maybe I didn't anticipate anything, but I uh, after that I I decided to go back to school. And I at that point I reflected on what I always enjoyed in biology seemed to be the uh, resounding favorite. And I ended up volunteering at the Children's Hospital here in Oakland to work on chlamydia and looking at this um, process called recombination in chlamydial strains and how that affects how virulent the strain is. And uh, eventually, uh, to look at recombination, we're using phylogenetic inference, and that led me to where I am today, which uh, is basically developing models that work on phylogenies and with uh, John Holsenbeck over here. Yeah, but it, most of this came. I'm not sure where. I'm not sure how exactly how I ended up where I am, but. <laughs> but it's working out yeah, it so seems, far. It seems. Yeah, it seems to work. I'm pretty happy. Nice. Uh, so, would you mind taking us through like one or two of your projects you worked on since you started your PhD at Berkeley? Yeah, I'll, I'll go through. How about I'll go through the two processes that I was talking about earlier. One is continuous trait evolution, and one is um, range evolution, which is uh, basically how do species get to where to be where they are. Um, and so both of these rely on phylogenies, uh, and they're time-calibrated phylogenies, which means the, you know how species are related to each other. And it, uh, a phylogeny, you can just imagine a family tree. You know that 
brothers and sisters are more closely related to one another than they are to cousins. But then they, these phylogenies also have branch links, and these branch links are in units of geological time, which means that if a branch length has a length of, say, 10, that might correspond to 10 million years. So both these, both these models I'm going to talk about rely on these t- time-calibrated phylogenies to some degree. The continuous trait models, uh, what I've, I've been working on this with largely with uh, Josh Schraber, who's up at University of Washington, and Mason Liang, who I think he just graduated from, from here at, uh, in Rasmus Nielsen's lab. But these processes are looking at whether, essentially they're trying to model the, the idea that a trait might have rapid evolutionary bursts or jump in value suddenly. And what this means is a little bit tricky, so I'm going to try to I'm going to try to break it down. So there's a there's a class of processes for continuous values, and it's called a Brownian motion. And what a Brownian motion is, it it's sort of this idea of a drunkard's walk. If you're familiar with that, a drunkard's walk is just something where in each little unit of time, a drunkard you can imagine him walking down a street with these two uh, perilous ditches, I guess. And uh, if you uh, no, you don't need the ditches. Yeah, you don't need to fall into the ditch if you're drunk, I suppose. <laughs> okay, so you just have a wide open, a wide open road, and the drunkard's walking down the road, and he, each step, it, he, he or she will, will be, uh, so either steps in uh, to the left or the right, but always in one direction or the other. And after time, because after these successive random events of stepping left or right, you end up with something that the drunkard, because you have equal opportunity of going left or right, you always expect to remain at the same initial trajectory the expectation after if you did this thousands and thousands of times you expect it always to be the same trajectory but the realization of the process you you tend to find that very few end up exactly where you started in terms of that trajectory the trajectory will wiggle up and down so brownian motion i can't really uh pantomime this over the microphone but it if you just take your finger and kind of wiggle it up and down and move to the right then it looks like something like that like you're writing sloppy cursive Okay, so the thing about Brownian motion is it is it's a modeling something called gradualism, which is that very small things happen over very small intervals of time. And if you think of a trait like uh, body mass, then this is saying that all changes to body mass. For you, now imagine the drunkard is walking along all the branches of this phylogenetic tree. So the the value of body mass is changing very small a very small amount at each little interval of time, but evolution can also happen very rapidly on short time scales. And one way to get at this is using this class of processes called Levy processes. And Levy processes um, are, the, the, the main takeaway is that they're, they're something like a Brownian motion, but they also allow for jumps to occur. And a jump now, if you want to use this uh, sort of cursive, uh, this cursive analogy, instead of just wiggling around uh imagine that you're you're riding in a car and you go over a big bump and it jerks your hand now suddenly you're riding at a at a different sort of trajectory you're riding somewhere else and so levy processes are interesting because they capture something about they capture something about the evolutionary process that says not all changes are small amounts over over shorter intervals of time and this gradualism idea is something that goes back to darwin it's how he how he thought that um evolutionary change accumulates over long periods of time is that everything is in small amounts but then you have other people like Eldridge and Gould in particular are famous for this with, say, punctuated equilibrium. This is probably the first, one of the first characterizations, I guess them and G.G. Simpson, but some of the first characterizations of how uh, evolutionary change can actually, when you look at the fossil record, for instance, you can get very large differences in, just a, in what appears to be very short geological timescales. 
So these levy processes are, uh, before I was talking about how you can set up these models to have parameters that tell you something about the nature of the process. So these uh, levy processes are nice because some of the parameters will say will tell you if these parameters have large values, then you have a, a gradual effect. On the other hand, if you have other parameters that control the jumpiness of the process, then it tells you you don't have a gradual effect, but you have sort of a punctuate, punctuated effect or a, a, a bursty effect that's going on. There's all sorts of cool things that emerge from these processes, but um, the, I guess the most important thing is that they capture something about about how evolution might work on these on these you know, really apparent traits like body mass that has been difficult to capture for a long time. I think, uh, I think Josh was the first one that ran across these things, but it was interesting because he, f- uh, he found them by looking in the financial, uh, the quantitative finance literature. So these are the guys that, you know, crashed the, crashed the global economy in 2008 by making predictions on various stock prices. <laughs> but you can think of a continuous trade as very much like a stock price. That time is, I mean, in stocks, it's, you're, you're lucky because the time scale is short and it's perfectly recorded. So in biology, you don't have quite the same luxury, right? You have very long time scales and you don't have this perfect fo- fossil record. You don't have like newspaper records of ha- what stock prices are over time. But the, the thing is in finance, they found that these types of processes, levy processes, also explain, the, explain observed um, trajectories of stock prices very well. And you see, you see these things pop up all over the place, these levy processes with basically the, that you might have bursts of rapid change. They, they pop up all over the place. And one aspect that seems, that seems to arise everywhere in nature is this idea of power laws or, power, or, or that the effects of the tail of a distribution are very important. And they might actually drive a lot of what we see in traits today or in various things we observe today. But these, these levy processes, the jumps are basically capturing this power law behavior that rare things can have large effects and be very important. So is it random, these these levy processes? Or, yeah. I mean, are they just happening randomly? Or is there something that sort of triggers it? Yeah, I mean, there's this is, this is, a, re- <laughs> yeah, this is a really difficult part of evolutionary biology, which is you're doing inference on this process and you don't know exactly what is, is driving these patterns. So if you have, if you look in, say, within populations, there are, ex, there are ex, you can do mutation ex, accumulation experiments where you basically subject some genotype to a bunch of random changes, and then you look at what the phenotype looks like after. And it does seem like you can have mutations that produce large effects, that have very drastic effects. So there's some, there's some experimental biological support for why you might expect large changes. There's also ecological, there, when you look at the fossil record, you also can, like uh, I was mentioning, punctuated equilibria. Like, I mean, this, is, this was primarily motivated by the idea that when you look at the fossil record, you have these periods of stasis, stabilizing selection, where, change, where when you look at the, sort of the morphology, the shape of the fossils, they, they remain constant over time, for long periods of time, and then suddenly everything is completely different. Um, so you have these periods of stasis followed by punctuated change where you, where you adopt a new optimum, where you adopt a new value. Um, so that's another, that's another way that you can see that this process is operating at macroevolutionary timescales over deep time. So it seems to be happening both at, uh, observationally at short, at, on short timescales, even in, like within a laboratory setting, and on long timescales. But um, the exact mechanism, I mean, that's such, it's a, such a difficult question for so many reasons. I mean, you have to be able to... Ideally, you'd be able to say that uh, some change occurs in a gene. That induces a change in the phenotype. The change in that phenotype is entirely determined by, or 
predominantly determined by the, by the change in the gene and perhaps minimally by whatever's happening in the environment because you still have some interaction for how uh, the phenotype, the, wh- how a body develops. That still has some interaction with the, the environment the, the body is raised in and it develops in. So, it, it, I mean, in evolutionary biology in general, it's difficult to come up with precise mechanisms when you're talking about all of life. But there, we do have these few examples that it's, uh, you can carefully extrapolate from them to say that this is probably something that happens all over the place. You look at, say, chicklids in, in, in Africa. I mean, these are, these are species that have undergone very rapid uh, changes in, in phenotype in their morphology. We're talking about teeth. Teeth. <laughs> we're always saying, yeah, no, I was yeah, we're talking about it the whole time. I was like, oh, teeth. Teeth are crazy. Great, yeah, well, yeah, and they're so heritable. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm getting uh, off. <laughs> yeah, getting you, off I mean, you get it with the uh, Nolus lizards in the Caribbean. That's a, that's another really popular, um, it's sort of this, these systems that are attractive for looking at these problems, basically how do genotype, phenotype, and environments interact? They tend to be systems that um, live somewhere in the middle between these what I'm what I've been calling macroevolutionary and microevolutionary timescales, and they're they're sort of in because a lot of it depends on this eco, these ecological interactions. I, I feel a little bit wishy washy talking about this. I don't I it, they're very hard to characterize exactly how it's very hard in, in general in science to, to say that something is causative of something else. It's not so hard to observe that there are relationships between certain phenomena. And um, I think these types of models, these types of processes, when you, can, when you can look at the problem from a different perspective, say this deep time perspective, and say that, look, over all these different groups of species, we're able to pick up signatures of rapid bursts of evolution. That seems to say something about the nature of what's causing these traits to, to arise, the things that we can actually observe. But this is really the, the heart of why... These, in, these types of models for inference are, at least I think they're crucial for understanding how we observe biodiversity today because it's the process that we expect to generate that biodiversity. So if you, wanna, if you want to be able to explain, like, if you want to be able to explain why certain groups are very diverse or, or not very diverse, why certain groups seem to be more prone to extinction or less prone to extinction, we can't run that, you know, 100 million year long experiment. So you have to do something that infers parameters that can t- hopefully can tell us something about the about the process. Okay. Well, if you can run through your second project very quickly, okay. we're definitely uh, <laughs> running up there. We're running up there. Yeah. Okay. So the other the other problem is looking at um, range evolution. So this is the idea of species ranges are basically where do species live today? And there's a field called biogeography, uh, which essentially describes how are species distributed both in space and time, which I, I always like that it's sort of grandiose. But uh, the, the, what's cool about it is it's um, this concept that really inspired both Darwin and, and A.R. Wallace to come up independently with these ideas of origin of species and evolution and whatnot. But what I've been working on there is um, only recently have these models for describing biogeographic processes, range evolution, have people begun to model them using probabilistic methods or, or stochastic processes. So it's really kind of, the, it's sort of the Wild West in terms of modeling these processes. Um, and I've been mostly interested in two types of problems. One is how do you scale up these models so that they work for very, um, for realistic data sets for very large numbers of areas. So an area might be something like an island. And uh, these these models current, uh, Typically, these models only allow you to use, say, eight or nine areas at a time. But um, if you're looking, if you want to talk about how a species is, is distributed over the Earth, then that's that's saying that each continent gets an area. But you really expect that there's more 
granular that you can you can discretize these areas in more granular ways. So I've been working on methods that allow you to use say hundreds of areas, perhaps thousands at a time, which allows you to actually do these these inference on global scales. Um, and the other the other topic I've been working on is um, how can you use these biogeographic processes to inform divergence times to to basically infer something about this uh, molecular clock versus geological time. And that's a little bit more, maybe we can just cut this second part. It's a little bit, that's too involved. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. It sounds like you've got a lot of really interesting projects going on and that they're really complex uh, things to think about. I mean, yeah, I enjoy enjoy (laughs) (laughs) that. Well, what, uh, if you had to give advice to students who were, you know, thinking about what can you do with computer science or how can you merge fields or, you know, what's, you know, maybe they're not interested in biology in the most traditional sense, like anatomy, but they, you know, they're interested in these concepts. What would you recommend for them? Yeah, I mean, I, so one thing I would recommend is um, I really do think that all at this point, all biology is tending towards using computers to do analysis, at least at some at some stage. And even if you're not somebody that's doing the analysis yourself to understand the implications of these analyses, it seems to become more and more important. If, if for nothing else, so you don't get hoodwinked by people that are sort of throwing it over your head and saying, oh, look, I'm using a fancy model, so therefore this is true. Uh, the, I mean, the, these models are very sensitive to the, to the assumptions they make. And the data that you use in these models are very sensitive to how it's collected. So you really have to understand a little bit about, about how these things work in order to do research these days. Otherwise, um, I mean, just similarly, like if you're working entirely on models, you have to know about the biology or else you're going to do something really ridiculous and uh, make assumptions that just aren't true. Um, So I guess one piece of advice is that everybody should at least, even just being like a member of modern society, I think everybody should know maybe a little bit of programming, know a little bit about computers. It seems to be more and more difficult to get away knowing nothing about computers. It makes your life a lot. I found it made my life a lot more pleasant because you have more patience working with them, and you see everybody has to work with computers these days. It sort of teaches you how to reason through problems and remain calm and uh, not sort of blame the world. You, you know, like there's certain things about computers where if you sit down and you think about it for a while and you ask ask for help and you're um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's I just I think that um, learning how to program or Understand, and this is vague now, <laughs> but yeah, it basically just gives you um, a way, uh, an easier way to get into research. And it's really not too difficult to learn how to program these days. There's lots of tutorials online. There are these, um, what are they called? I think the acronym's MOOC, is that right? Massively Online, Massively Something Online Coursework. Hmm. There's two O's in there. <laughs> Anyways, uh, free resources where you can learn to program. It's really it's a lot of fun once you get into the hang of it. It's like writing poetry a little bit. You, you learn how to express yourself to some degree. So, ah, so back to the art again. Oh, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, you actually teach some classes occasionally, too. Or you used to. Uh, yeah, I've taught a... So I've been working on some software projects that that hopefully... The, it's a software project called RevBase, which is uh, entirely designed around... Um, how do you simplify the way that you um, declare a model? So let's say that you have some, let's say as a biologist, you know the theory really well and you know your system really well. And all the people that are working, all the people that can are good programmers that can implement these models, well, they might not be able to cater their model to your system. You might have a really specific question you want to get at. But this, I know I just said that programming is not difficult, but some parts of it are a little bit tricky. And... Um, 
it'd be nice if it, this this project RevBase is basically trying to get at the idea that you should be able to abstract away a lot of the computational efficiencies and only expose the part that lets you declare your model. And um, the idea here is that uh, we've come up with a, a framework for specifying these models and a fairly simple um, language to, to do so also. And uh, these workshops, several of them are revolve around the idea of come in with some data set that you're, that you're interested in. We'll run you through a few basic models and how to set them up in RevBase. And um, most, most people that attend these workshops, they don't have any problems. And then also uh, accompanying that, bring in your own data set and let us know about what you're working on, and we can help you um, customize some models to your data set. And often these are questions, I mean, they're really cool questions. You learn so much about uh, this, the current state of the field just by talking to biologists about what they're frustrated with, why can't they do this certain model. Um, so a lot of these workshops are essentially trying to lower the barrier, sort of democratize how to specify models to biologists. I mean, so far, as, as long as somebody can say what process they're interested in and understand what parameters are interesting for that process, then they, they can basically do inference on it. And that's a, it's a huge step forward because it, it means you don't have to have a computer science degree to, to be able to explore like this really vast interesting space of possible ways that evolution works. Yeah. yeah, so just like you were saying, I mean, computers are so important now in biology, so you're just trying to make it more accessible to people who don't have the same formal background that you do. Yeah, I mean, uh, one, I guess one way you can think about it is if you, think of a, if you think of an industry like, let's say, what Apple's been doing. Apple's, Apple gets a lot of flack, but one thing they do really well is they, they are able to come up with products that are easy to use and help people do what they want. And they're not too frustrating to use. And um, there's no reason that people should really have to grapple with computers in general. If so long as you can provide an intuitive interface, then people should be able to use computers as naturally as anything. I mean, I see my, my, uh, my nephew, like my, my uh, sister will give him an iPad and he'll be flicking through it with his fingers. And then you see him pick up a book and he's expecting that the book should interact in the same way. And I think a lot of this... Um, I think a lot of what's scary or, or foreboding about using programming for biologists is, is the language and that interface. But it, once, you, once that first hurdle is overcome, it's really, it becomes really intuitive and sometimes clarifying to work on, with computers because everything is explicit in a certain way. And um, you can always go back and see what mistakes were made or what, what was done sort of cleverly. or It's... But uh, so something like RevBase is basically trying to take this approach of how do we make it so that working on models and working on inference isn't as daunting as it has to be? Because um, I, I don't know, I, I think that it's uh, it should just open up new doors for biologists to do research without having to recruit um, quantitative types, um, or maybe just get some more excited in quantitative research too. I mean, that's that's the other side of it. Yeah, and this this whole RevBase project is something that. Uh, is mostly led by Sebastian Hona and uh, been working with John and my advisor and Frederick and other former Holsenbeck lab members, um, which we're pretty excited about. But <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds yeah. really cool. Well, we're just about out of time here on The Graduates. Do you have any last words you want to get out there? Hmm. Not too many, actually. I, that's, I think that's just about it. <laughs> no, that's it. You said lots of words, so no. it's, been, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Uh, 
Thank you again, Michael, for joining us here on The Graduates. Well, thanks for having me. Anytime, <laughs> anytime. If you're just tuning in, it's too late. It's over. Uh, we had another episode, an amazing episode of The Graduates, interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their research. Today, I was speaking with computational biologist Michael Landis, who's just about wrapping up his time here in the Department of Integrative Biology. He was telling us about his work with uh, modeling and continuous traits and biogeography and uh, just sort of the intersection between computers and biological thought. So uh, thank you again. And uh, my name's Tesla Munson. Stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley.